Welcome to The Week on Radio with me, Erin Wilson. And me, Harry Holmes. We're here to discuss the week's biggest news stories and offer our thoughts on the best to the worst of what the world has to offer. Okay, welcome back to uh, The Week on Radio. We've had a week off this week um, for lots of reflecting. Harry, how was your week off? I, I spent lots of time sort of with finger on my chin <laughs> I should on my hope time. so yeah, reflection week. plenty of reflecting I think yeah. the news is if the news is anything to go by there's plenty to reflect on um, so we'll get right into it so our first story is again I've just titled Rishi Sunak because there are many different things to talk about so obviously Rishi Sunak has now been the Prime Minister for a week I think he came in last Monday uh, and there's been plenty of things going on since then. Obviously, he's rearranged his cabinet a little bit. We've got um, the Suella Braverman chaos that's going on. We've had the NHS in the news this week as well when he went to see the patient who gave him a, a bit of a telling off. Uh, we've had the Trevor Noah comments. We've had... Uh, it's been announced that Richard Sunak is not going to attend COP26. Uh, the fiscal statement has been pushed back um, as well. There's just a lot to unpack I mean that's that's just a few to mention but um yeah I think first thing to discuss maybe so he's been he's been prime minister for a week how do we think he's doing so far well you'd think a week would be a short amount of time but you think this trust yeah. a week is quite a long time wasn't yeah. it but we should have said when we started it's another week another prime minister yeah, isn't it let's trust the prime every, minister last yeah, time <laughs> genuinely but I just think he had so in his first week he's had the chance just to sort of keep it quiet don't mm. make the news Nothing, no chaos, no scandals, um, and then as you mentioned, he reappointed. I don't think he succeeded, has he? Yeah, he reappointed Suella Braverman. So, because um, she obviously resigned for breaking the ministerial code, mm. I think she sent government documents, confidential documents, on her personal email, yeah, in an email. to people that shouldn't have been able to see them. Um, so she resigned, and then he he reappointed her a week later. So, in terms of you know, a new government, a new moral compass. Um, I don't think we found found a new moral compass at all. No, I don't think so. I think he was on the right track. I mean, obviously he's he's very much been brought... Well, you know, he was chosen by the Tory party, but I think he's very much been brought into calm things, which I can see. But again, there's blips like Suella Braverman, and uh, I've put further down as well, bringing Gavin Williamson back in as well. These sorts of things, to me, don't make sense when he is... So, you know, he's sort of painted as a, a calming presence. You know, he's a very sort of centrist Tory. Um, but again, within a week, he's all over the newspapers for multiple reasons. So, yeah, I think Keir Starmer called it a dodgy deal. Do- yes, that was it. Like a dodgy deal or a grubby deal. He is suggesting it? that Sunak, in order to win the MPs over to such an extent that it didn't have to go to the party members. Mm. That he's made deals with people like Suella Braverman, Gavin Williamson, you know, people with influence. Yeah. To if he has their backing, their support, then it meant that Penny Morden couldn't get those mm. hundred, hundred votes that was needed. Um. So it does. It's not. Yeah. It's a better start than Liz Truss. We will say that. But there's <laughs> a very low bar. There's a very it? low yeah. bar. Yeah. Um. As, as opposed to the other thing is they've pushed that fiscal statement back mm. to November. So. Quasi Kwarteng had that November chaos of the mini budget, then he brought it forward to uh, today, it would have been, I think. Yeah, it would have been it? today. Yeah. And then they've pushed it back again to November 17th. Um, but I suppose that is sort of the, the leftover from Quasi Kwarteng's budget, isn't it? That he 
with Sunak coming in, he's making wholesale changes to that mini yeah. budget that he does need that extra time. That's it. That. It's probably giving him a bit of breathing space, yeah. isn't it? My only worry with that is it's very close to Christmas, so I'm wondering what impact that might have because then it's only what a month out from Christmas. Yeah. Um, what is potential that, is that in impact? terms of calming the markets? Kind yeah. Of thing? Yeah. Um, well, the likelihood is that it will calm the markets. This um, is what we're hoping, isn't it? It is, but by doing that, what will probably happen is, I put my notes here, austerity part two. Mm, yeah. Um, so the markets will be nice and calm, but it will likely be the British public that will be fronting the hardship, I think, with prices going up. So the, I've, I've just put a number of key issues. Um, there's still calls for benefits to be... Mm-hmm. Um, raised in line with inflation, there's still calls for that. He hasn't came out pretty much. Sunak hasn't said anything since no, he's been he hasn't. here. Yeah. <laughs> so he's he, he's not making mistakes. Quiet on some things, not on others. Things. Yeah. So there's benefits. There's um, obviously the ongoing energy crisis, mm-hmm. the war in Ukraine. Um, there's the idea that how are we going to pay for? We've got a big, huge black hole in our um, in the public finances. So are we going to pay that with tax rises? So are the people going to front that? Are they going to tax the rich higher? Um, I take it there won't be tax cuts like Liz Truss suggested. And then we still need growth as well. So there is a real balancing act that needs to go on. And I haven't even mentioned there's stuff like net zero by 2050, the migration and channel crisis and the ongoing issues with the Northern Ireland Protocol as well. So it's it's a tricky start for Sunak mm. and I think he's taking his time and just being he's being very careful about what he's doing Yeah. after he appointed Suella Braverman because I think he needed to do that to get to make sure it didn't go to the party members. Yeah, I do think he's treading lightly. Obviously there's a lot he has to deal with and I think him he is being quiet and careful in certain ways, which I think is good because again going back to Liz Truss, she came in quite hard and fast and we saw what happened there and she crashed and burned. Yeah. So I do think in that sense he's doing the right thing. Um I mean obviously he's coming at a very tricky time where Liz Truss has put him in quite a difficult position in terms of what he has to fix, yeah, essentially. Well, we were already in a difficult position before Liz Well, Truss. exactly. I, I wrote when Liz Truss became Prime Minister on a little article that Liz Truss has the most challenging set of issues to deal with for mm. an incoming Prime Minister. And now Sunak has the exact same issues, apart from... Yeah. No, as well as the issues caused by yeah, Liz Truss and Liz Truss, yeah. So I think he now has the most difficult intray. Um just on top of that as well I think in Rishi Sunak's favour I think is that through Covid that he did support the people so I've talked about austerity part two mm. where it'll be the people that's going to front it there's going to be you know public spending cuts at a time where we need public spending increases um, so I, I've said the people are going to front the hardship but he showed during the pandemic that when the people really needed you know input from the government he did give that through um, the furlough the scheme, scheme yeah. yeah. Yeah, so obviously that is encouraging because, again, when when they mention spending cuts, you immediately think, well, NHS, which has already been mentioned, um, and then the public are going to front um, all these other bills with sort of taxes and stuff. So, yeah, obviously during the pandemic, which is when we really needed support, he did come through. So obviously hoping again that he does that now because I think this is, again, it's just another sort of crisis that we really do need um, that support 
Yeah, uh, but I suppose on the other side, of sort of a foreign against here. So mm. I've said in Sunak's favour is the fellow scheme and helping yeah. the people. But then there was that video that went a little bit viral of him in Tunbridge Wells, Wells. Yeah, where he was yeah. saying, for too long money has been taken out of rural areas yeah. and put into deprived urban areas. Um, so I, I think Again, that, I don't that's really probably his true stance really, isn't it? But like, Well, yeah, because it was a lead video, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's... That's you know, probably he's probably what saying he really that feels, yeah. in the safety thinking, oh, this isn't going to get out. But, yeah, again, in sort of saying something like that, again, well, it just, um, I think, reaffirms his very much Tory stance. But, again, you just question the logic behind making a comment like that. Even if, you know, he didn't think it was going to get out, he's he's in a position now where everyone is going to be watching him. And I think even more so... Yeah, probably even more so than Prime Ministers before him, even though we've had Boris Johnson and Liz Truss this year who were controversial and car crashes yeah. for completely different reasons. He's now got to undo all the bad that they've done. I think he really needs to be, well, yeah, careful and really watch Th- what, what he's, he's saying doing, and what it? he's yeah. doing. But just a, a reminder that he was a major part in Boris Johnson's government. He was so as well. They, uh, I, said, I said this when Liz Truss came in as well, but they, they'll try and play it off as a fresh, clean mm. clean break from what's gone a new government when actually it's the same It's the same Conservative yeah. Party that's been in power for 12 years Yeah, um, I think they are really trying to push it as like a clean break, you know, there's yeah. calls for him to sort of purge the party of all the right like Suella Braverman, yeah. but obviously she's she's still in, but like he sacked um, Jake Berry, who's the Tory chairman so I think he, you know, he's slowly, tra- I think, trying to bring in more centrist Tories again that to get that sense of calm but as you say, he's part of a Tory government that that was previously. It's just sort of another version of the same. Yeah, but I think. I, what I will say is, I do think he's the right man for the job. Mm. Whereas Liz Truss showed that she had complete that she really wasn't. She had no nothing going for her. In she terms didn't, of being did the right she? She had no charisma. She had no idea what she was doing. I think again, going back to his role as Chancellor, he he's quite known for that. So I think that's him. He sort of established himself in that, I think. So I do think you're right, him succeeding as Prime Minister, um, again, was probably a next step for him. So, yeah, I think out of everyone we could have had, um, well, which was, what, him, Penny Morden and Boris Johnson, which, thank Oof. God, was never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good job we didn't have the podcast Oh, dear last God, week. yeah. <laughs> when, when there was calls for Boris Johnson to come back. No, thank God that didn't happen. But, yeah, I think out of those, he's he's the right man for the job. Um yeah, I, I guess the, the the only thing we haven't touched on is his background. Yes, um, which is a is a positive step forward in, in one sense. It is, and I think the lack of backlash to it is another positive thing as well. Because again, looking at this country, it's it's progressive in some ways and not in others. I would have expected, you know, you know, the armchair detectives to take to Twitter and start mouthing off, but we didn't see a lot of that. The biggest thing we saw was Trevor Noah's comments. Which sparks a more of a backlash on him than on Rishi Sunak himself. Yeah. Um, so just his background is he of Indian? Indian, yeah. Indian, his parents yeah. are Indian. So that's that is progressive in one sense, isn't mm. it? Because I think he's the first he's the person first, of colour yeah. to be prime minister, which is a huge step mm, forward. Yeah. Um, but I suppose cynically, my reminder is that he is privately educated from a wealthy background. 
um, I think he's married to the daughter of a billionaire. Yeah, which is where most of his net worth comes from. Dodging tax and all sorts, wasn't she? Yes. So um, it's progressive in some ways, but also more of the same as well. Yeah, it is. Again, I, I was reading this in the newspaper yesterday, and um, Rishi Sunak and his wife, their net worth is, I think it's 730 million, billion, yeah. whatever it is. They're worth more than the king, which I think really says something. Mm. So, yeah, on the one hand, it's fantastic that he has risen to, you know, one of the most powerful positions in the country, in England as well. But on the other hand, I think it is going to be a bit bittersweet because, you know, obviously, I mean, for representation... I I can't sort of relate to that. I can't see maybe how powerful that is for people of Indian descent to see someone in that position. Yeah. But I don't know how encouraging that might be, how representative he is, because like you say, he's still come from the privileged background yeah. of previous prime ministers we've seen. So because he gets a lot of stick for wearing these expensive suits and stuff yeah. like that. So yeah, it is a step. I do think it is a step. Forward. It's definitely a positive step. I, in I think some it sense, highlights yeah. a problem for Labour as well that they. I've not only not had a prime minister of colour hmm. or a leader of colour even, and they are yet to have a female leader either. So that is Labour have some catching up to do, I think. Yeah, it's, I think it says something that the Tories are ahead when it comes to representation, yeah, doesn't definitely. it? Definitely. Although, on the other hand, Keir Starmer, I think his shadow cabinet is the most diverse right, that's okay. ever been. Hmm. So, um, but in terms of that leadership position, definitely Labour have some catching up to yeah. do. Yeah. Okay, so our second story is uh, the Twitter takeover by Elon Musk, which was closed in the last week. Um, so I think Elon Musk has trying to been take over, take over Twitter for must be months now. The sort of legal um, battle has been ongoing, but so he's finally um, completed his takeover of Twitter, and within almost hours, I think he fired some of the top executives of Twitter. Um, safe to say, he's quite a divisive figure, and I think this move is also being seen as very divisive as well. So. He's fired the CEO, the CFO, and the policy chief, who all left the building within hours. Uh, the takeover itself cost $44 billion um, and is said to have sparked utter mayhem. I think the worry with this is, because of who Elon Musk is as a figure and his views, there is a worry that this will encourage um, more hate speech on Twitter because he's already mentioned he's open to bringing back some of the most notorious controversial posters including Donald Trump yeah which is probably the scariest thing um so yeah what do we think of this I th- it's just there's obviously motives behind it isn't there yeah. because he said he, he's not buying Twitter to make money no he said it's not a way to make money so his wider plan his larger plan is that he wants to create a western everything mm. app which I, I think is called WeChat, WeChat in China yeah. they have something similar but he wants one one place, one app to do, you know, social networking, messaging, entertainment, um, all sorts of stuff like that. And he wants it to be a digital town hall. Mm. So it's kind of, it's innovative, isn't it? it? Is. So I suppose that's a, a step in the right direction. But then do we really want one man to have a monopoly over? That's it, that's a lot of power yeah, to have. Is. And I think with, with Twitter as well, I think it's quite a powerful social media. I mean, it's you know, it's where I go for news sometimes or yeah. discussion, conversation. Um, but it is also a place that breeds hate in a way. There's you know, there's a lot of backlash that we see on Twitter to a lot of things. So 
him having control of that and potentially sparking, you know, uh, I don't know what you call it, sparking a fire, whatever it is, yeah. by bringing some figures like Donald Trump and, you know, people like him back, it just sounds very dangerous, I think. It does, but then he, he'd argue that there's he's an advocate of free speech. He would. So, it's... But there's free speech and there's... Well, there's free speech and there's hate, hate speech. Hate speech yeah. So... But he, he's talked about all sorts of innovations. So first and foremost, he wants to get rid of spam mm. bots and scams on Twitter. So that that would be great. Um, but he's also he wants to make sort of it. He wants to make Twitter multifaceted, sort of customizable space where um, you can opt in and out of things that you want to be able to see. And he's talked about having designated online spaces for arguments, so that the whole Twitter platform doesn't become what it is really now, is which is mm. just a argumentative sort of forum isn't it he wants to have a designated space for that and then I suppose he'd have a designated space for news all sorts of things but if it's not if he's not buying Twitter to make money can we trust him to be in charge of what he really wants to do is make the world a better place is what he'd say Mm. isn't he can we trust that Um, if you look at kind of the innovation of Apple at the time is what I'd it's kind of similar, um, but Elon Musk is even more extravagant in the way mm. he wants to innovate with you. Look at sort of SpaceX and stuff like that. That's it, yeah. I think he's he's sort of taking over one area of life, sort of yeah. one bit at a time, isn't yeah. he? Um, but if you look at Apple, they they were innovating at the same time they were using Chinese sweatshops mm. and stuff like that. So I just, I just can't really get behind this mega capitalist, you know, is he the, is he the richest man in the world? I think he... I think he, if, he, is. if he isn't, he must be close. Yeah. Um, again, I just can't trust him to really want to make the world a better place. That's it. I I don't trust him. When all this has been going on, when the, you know, every time I saw there's been pushbacks and he wasn't successful, I was very happy. When I saw that his deal had finally been closed, I was very worried. You know, he says, you know, he wants to bring free speech and he doesn't want to make money. But as you said, he's the richest man in the world, and he's a very staunch capitalist. Yeah. So there's clearly a motive. He might say there's no motive for money, but there clearly is in there. And especially when you look at how much money Twitter makes, that has definitely got a factor into why he was so adamant in getting this deal in the first place. So I I don't think his motives are wholly innocent. You know, he says he wants to make Twitter a better place. Is there a potential maybe for it to go the other way? Well, definitely, because it's pretty hateful as it is Twitter, exactly. isn't it? So if he's going to sort of relax the um, the rules on what you can and can't mm. say, then you can only imagine that it's going to be more hateful. And this is particularly pertinent when we um, talked about Molly Russell a few weeks yes. ago. So we've got someone who has such power who is trying to relax online rules. Mm. And then we had the Molly Russell story where we both agree that's very important that there needs to be sort of more regulation yeah. online. No, absolutely. Like you say, it's at a time when we potentially need... I don't want to say strict, but we certainly need more regulation online. As you said, after Molly Russell, but obviously she's not the only person who would spark that sort of conversation. Um, it's not the time to be relaxing things and in, you know potentially encouraging really bad behaviours and sentiments to appear online where it, you know it's a free for all I mean Twitter's a free for all I think at the moment anyway yeah. I think 
a good first step, something I would get behind mm. is sort of ID verification on accounts. Yeah. So to be on Twitter, you have to upload your driver's license. Mm. I would like another sort of stuff with data protection. And do we want yeah. someone, one app to have a large proportion of the world's data? Mm. Um, but but I agree some sort of verification, like, you know, yeah, he so wants to get rid of bots and stuff like that. I agree is a good idea because, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things on Twitter where people copy each other's profiles and what's it like catfish and stuff, you know yeah. things like that I, I agree with I think that and would be good it would stop people hiding behind mm, behind yeah. sort of anonymous profiles as well exactly because then they feel like that they've got this sort of shield of anonymity mm. where they can say whatever they want with no consequences yeah so I think that would be a good start because everyone only needs one I, I'd say everyone should have one account and it, the name has to be their name. Mm. Um, that's what I'd like to see as a start. But then he's also talked about stuff like the edit button on Twitter, um, which is a big one. So it's kind of if someone tweets something, it's meant to be that's it, that's, that's out it, there. Yeah. But then if they can change what they've said after people have read it, mm. there's some there's some uh, debate about that as well. But I think probably it will. It is innovative. It, it is innovative, yeah. But it's just I I can't personally trust this sort of mega capitalist to be. What he's trying to do is have a monopoly of the online digital world, mm. isn't he? So I don't know whether his interests are going to be to make the world a better place, to make the online world a better place, or whether his interests are to have that monopoly over the entire digital sector. Yeah, I'm more likely to to sort of swing towards the latter really him yeah. having that that power um, and again with this it just feels like with sort of the evolution of social media apps they're just trying to one up each other I think you know we always see them sort of copying yeah. you know they've all got things like stories enabled you know any sort of mention he wants it to be like a shopping place and messaging and games and films it seems like Facebook got a bit of that as well Instagram have got a bit of that as well so it just seems like it'll be one after the other so they'll all try and start competing will he then maybe seek to try and take over all these other social media apps combined that's his plan isn't it so yeah. that he, he would create this everything app which I think he wants to call X, X. is what he said he wants to X right. the everything app he wants that so whereas now I you know sort of scroll through Instagram I find news on Twitter yeah. I message friends on Snapchat and Facebook Messenger I think he wants just one app yeah. one area to do all those things um, so I think that's his motives behind it. So you'd likely see those apps either be incorporated into it mm. or more likely just f slowly fall off as everyone starts using yeah. this Yeah. See, I'd be very worried about having one app that, that that's just it for social media. Cause I think one thing, like, I tend to use more social media apps than others. Like, I use Twitter quite a lot because I like looking at sort of news and discussion, things like Instagram and Facebook, I don't use that much. I think I'd be worried that sort of cultivating things into one it just seems like a I, 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 I'm thinking about sort of the sense of control I, I'd just be very worried because obviously if he's got all this power he can push certain things and certain messages and if that's just coming from one app everyone's going to have the same information Yeah. I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm making sense but that I think really this story just makes me very worried yeah, nothing absolutely. else that's the bottom line um, but I, I suppose in his defence the first thing he said with Twitter is that before he makes any major changes, he's setting up a council um, to sort of sort out what 
people should and shouldn't be allowed to say on Twitter. So mm. I think he is... I mean, he could get it absolutely right, couldn't he? He could. Um, there is obviously that potential, yeah. Right, so our last story of today, last major story, mm. is that there has been... I think, was it an article... Was it in The Guardian? In The Telegraph. In The Telegraph, yeah. sorry, yeah. Um, where basically it came out that apparently elite schools are potentially having a bias against them in comparison to fee-paying schools mm. for the purpose of gaining entry to Oxford and Cambridge, yeah. is what they've been saying. So, basically, if you go to a state, a state school, you're more likely to get into Oxford and Cambridge than a fee-paying school. Mm which they've said alarm bells should be ringing, was what the Telegraph led with, whereas I think that should be something to be celebrated. That should be, yeah. yeah. That's a cause of, yeah, like you say, celebration, that's success. Yeah, so it's, it's all sorts of questions. I, again, wrote an article on this. as something mm. I'm a little bit passionate about, passionate about, where if you look at the percentage of the population that attend fee-paying schools, which... The, at the time I wrote the article this year was 7% mm. so 7% of the population attend fee paying schools but over 30% of those that attend Oxbridge are privately educated mm. so that's the divide we're already working on it's something that it's not representative of Britain as a whole and there's still the issue of you can pay your way yeah. in the world which shouldn't be a thing anymore no no I think well yeah, as soon as I saw this story, I thought this was a good one to talk about because, yeah, when this no alarm bell should be ringing, it took me a, a little while to sort of think, well, why? What yeah, you know? Who for? Yeah. Who for? You know, well, the people, the people in charge of, the, you know, the people, schools. Yeah, yeah, the people in charge of fee-paying yeah. schools, the students. Like, there's nothing stopping. You know, it doesn't mean that people from private schools are never going to get into these elite schools. They're not saying that. They're still more likely than they should be. The, exactly, they've still got that privilege. They've still got that education. The point is now it's just evening things out, which is the whole point of higher education. Like I worked in higher education for a year and this is the sort of thing we would champion that we'd be yeah. so happy for because you'd meet students who were, you know, fantastic. They'd be they were so clever that you you know, they got all straight A's and things like that. And yet they'd see Oxford and Cambridge as as again this elite sort of cream of the crop, unattainable goal. When really they were on the exact same level as some of these fee paying students. So, yeah, it, it ultimately is a good thing. You know, saying alarm bells should be ringing, they've still got the same opportunity. It's just leveling the playing field, which is what it should be for higher education. The point is of higher education yeah. that it's accessible, and that is what this is working towards. So, it is a good thing. It is, yeah, but I, I think my opinion is that a two-tier education system mm. creates a two-tier society so a divided system creates a divided society mm. so it just I'll list off some more yeah yeah some go more for stats. it more facts give is them facts 58% of privately educated students achieved either A star or an A this year in their A levels whilst only 30% of students wow. studying at a state school manage the same feat so if you're privately educated in school you're more likely to achieve A star or A. Yeah. And then we talked about them, there being that privately educated pupils are more likely to go to Oxbridge mm. in comparison with the, the percentage of people that go to fee-paying schools. Yeah. So it's it's the figure is that if you go to a state school, you're more likely to go to Oxbridge. Mm. But that's because far more people attend state schools than yeah. 
those that attend private schools. So then we've talked about the more, more likely to do better in school. You're overrepresented in the UK's top universities, and then also if you're privately educated, you're more likely to get the top jobs mm. as well. So, sixty-five um, percent of senior yeah. judges privately educated, fifty-seven percent of um, the House of Lords privately educated. Um, a big one here we just talked about Rishi Sunak and how it's such a progressive thing for a person of colour to be Prime Minister mm. 65% of his cabinet is privately educated yeah. so, remember 7% of the population are privately educated so that's a, it's a huge overrepresentation mm. in the, the UK's top jobs and this one is particularly important to um, to us Ellen, <laughs> is that 44% of newspaper yeah. columnists as well Almost half. so we're competing against that yeah Again, yeah, when when you see those numbers, I think it just shows that it's even more important to have this level playing field. Um, it's even more important to have that. I think the issue they were taken with is because, um, like you say, st- pupils from state schools are more represented because there's more of them, there's a higher percentage of them. What they're worried here is that they're almost showing a bias because they go to state schools. Like they, were, they weren't getting in based on talent, they were getting in because they went to a state school you know they were looking at students who um i think i don't know if they could see like whose parents were on benefits or like they were looking if they had free school meals and things like that you know work which certain areas they were yeah. coming from that's the merit on which they were getting in not based on their academic performance or skill or talent um so i think there's an issue with that as well so there definitely is some bias for the wrong reasons in that way so is their argument that this is about meeting quotas rather than yeah, those most deserving. Yeah, in a way, yeah, it's sort of a tick box exercise, which is which is why I found this article quite interesting because, in that sense, it's not making a level playing field. It's it's just almost sort of saving face. It's for those. It's for the public image of, of yeah. the elite institutions but that they are trying to be representative. I think that's how it looks if you look just solely at this mm. Oxbridge um, issue. But if you sort of take a step back and look, that is trying to level the playing field of the whole education system. Mm. So the quality of education in fee-paying schools is obviously f- far higher yeah. than state schools. So really, the, the these quotas from used by Oxbridge are trying to level the playing field of the entire mm. education system, which is a, a difficult task to do. But it, there's a link between being privately educated, being overrepresented in top universities and then achieving the UK's top jobs yeah. so so that needs to change somewhere mm. I think my issue then is that this is kind of sorting it in the middle so I'm not sure how that really fixes anything it either needs to be addressed at the start by increasing the quality of state education yeah. or by stopping the link between those privately educated gaining the top jobs that mm. maybe that shouldn't be something that employers are are impressed by that that's the thing because there's um there's status attached to play you know if you say oh, i went to oxford or i went to cambridge like, yeah. I, I have friends who went to these universities and i go you know it's so impressive that's amazing but it doesn't make any literally any other university in the country any less meritable yeah so yeah they they do sort of look for that status because Attached to that status is, I think it's it's wealth and I, I, I don't know maybe talent, but again status and it probably says something about your family and yourself. So there's there's all that attached to 
going to Oxford or Cambridge. So, and maybe there shouldn't be as well because there was um, a, a, a top rugby coach, Eddie Jones, hmm. um, came on because in rugby there's a huge, um, huge representation of privately yeah. educated people in rugby. Um, I guess just sort of because that is the culture of sport. Mm. I don't know whether it's played more in in private schools or whatever. But he said that privately educated rugby players lack the resolve that that he that he thinks they should have. Really? So, yeah. So he he's kind of saying that you know players that are privately educated actually lack things that state school players have. You know that that yeah. drive, that desire. I c- yeah, I can understand that because I think as well. I think. Um, again, things I've seen about private schools compared to state schools is there's more intermixing of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds in state schools that I don't obviously, you know, I don't know the inner world of a private school, but I can't imagine that intermixing is on the same level and I think that does build a certain resolve and a certain self-awareness that, yeah, you don't see in private school people and again, I think we've you know, going through university, you meet all sorts of different people. I think we can agree that state school versus private school students, there is something a little bit different about them. So I can understand that there's a difference in sort of resolve and determination, things like that. So maybe employers should be looking at, you know, the best state schooled yeah, absolutely applicants for mm. jobs because they might have something that those in private school don't have. Yeah, but, um, I think it, it's a step in leveling the playing field but it, it is. is it's kind of not where it needs to be it mm. needs to be either addressing the well you could abolish private schools exactly does that th- <laughs> or that choice? you could which is my um I'd, I'd prefer to just you know increase the quality of state education mm. um but we, we're considering this alongside there's going to probably be cuts to state education yeah because um, of the current financial situation we find ourselves in so I don't think this is going to be addressed anytime soon. I don't think it will um, especially when the cabinet is 65% Oh yeah they're educated, not going to be so. turning on their own no. are they? But um, I'm, I'm happy that Oxford and Cambridge are doing something like this Yeah um, I think it's encouraging to see because I think again when you think of universities they are they are like we've said sort of top elite aren't they so yeah, yeah it's good to see that at least on this level they are addressing that, that level playing field somewhat and then you hope that if it starts at the top I don't want to say trickle down, but it'll influence other universities yeah. to do the same. We'll move on to some good news. Um, if this is good news, can it be called good news? This is good news. It's a light story. Yeah, so a painting. I'm not sure where the, where the painting's been found. Let me... It's been in New York, hasn't it? In New York. Yeah. Well, a painting has been found... That has been hanging upside down for 75, 75 years. 75 years? Yeah. So it's a no painting by Pierre Mondrian, if that's how you say it. <laughs> uh, it's titled New York City. And th- the most interesting thing... So basically they have f- found a picture of the artist hmm. painting and the painting is the other way around. So how everyone's been... Oh, that's how they found that's it. That's how they found it, yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that they're going to continue to display it the wrong way up. Oh, I thought they were going to... Oh, yeah, because they were worried about the damage, weren't they? Ah, right. So I don't know whether this is a good news story. I just found it a little bit funny that everyone's been looking at the painting upside down. I think, think yeah, I think it's quite quirky. It just speaks of art, doesn't it? You know, the artist intended it one way, 
but it's been taken a different way for 75 yeah. years and no one's known. It just speaks that art is very subjective, isn't it? Yeah, but is that a criticism of art then, that actually... <laughs> well, it's all actually, subjective, isn't it? Actually, these people that are enjoying, are enjoying it actually don't know what they're doing at they all. They don't know. I mean, yeah, because it's been, I think it's... it's been has, upside down. It's been upside down for 75 years. But has it been, like, in the MoMA, I think, in New York all this time? Yeah. You know, so you've got art experts and things like that, and they, and yeah, they didn't know for 75 years, but... Yeah. I think, in fairness, if you actually look up a picture of the, the painting... There is no way of knowing what way it will go no. at all. It's not like there's <laughs> yeah, anything. Yeah, I was to go trying to work it out, to, thinking, it's a oh, bit abstract. It, yeah, it is so. very abstract, isn't it? Yeah, I, I couldn't work it out. I can see now they explained it like the other way around. It's meant to be like the sky, isn't it, or like the sunset or something? Yeah, the top, but that's at the bottom. As but it's, it's now at the bottom. Yeah, but if you actually look at it, it's just kind of a load of lines yeah. um, that you'd have no idea which way it should go. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Um, but like you say, it's a light story. It's a bit, it's a bit quirky, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, something a bit lighter. Yeah, we also found a second news story. Um, so as I was going, well, it's still, it's only a little one, but I found this going through the paper yesterday. So Disney have um, debuted their first plus-size heroine in a new short film called Reflect, uh, which is about a ballet ballet dancer with body confidence issues. Um, and I think Disney's doing quite well at the moment in terms of progressive because obviously we've got the little mermaid film that's come either mm-hmm. out this year or out next year um which has got the f- not the first but um the actress playing it is a person of color so yeah. they're doing quite well in terms of cre- um progression but yeah again i just thought this was, it's all about representation isn't it and seeing someone like you on the screen but i thought this was this was really good it's just another nice little thing to see and look forward to yeah i guess it follows on i guess from the what we're talking about privately educated and state mm. education is that this is an area where it's not reflecting what society actually looks like yeah so and now i think over the past few years it is it's, it's slowly there, isn't changing it? isn't it yeah it's getting there which is which is encouraging i think the one criticism is that i think the short film i think it's only six minutes long so a few people have said it's a little bit gimmicky mm. um to to not kind of do a full film on someone like this but I'm sure because it's had such positive reaction as it should do yeah I'm hoping it's going to snowball into like a proper film yeah. yeah that's what I was thinking um, but yeah again either way like we've said with a couple of these stories it's a step in the right direction yeah and I think the name Reflect yeah it I really like that the people better mm, so. which it should do yeah, yeah I like that Right, do you want to tell us about sport? Sport, yeah, there's nothing too much going on this week, really. Um, Liverpool lost again, but I'm not... <laughs> I'm not I've said that's not really news anymore because it <laughs> keeps happening. Uh, it's becoming the norm. But no, nothing really noteworthy going on in football this week. Um, the only thing, I suppose, is that Brighton beat Chelsea 4-1. And there's a little bit of a story there because the Chelsea manager, Graham Potter earlier in the season left Brighton to go to Chelsea and has then been turned over by his old side so that's there's a story there hmm. but otherwise Arsenal City Spurs United they're all winning as expected Palace beat Southampton and Newcastle thrashed Aston Villa as since we last spoke Steven Gerrard's been sacked uh, and Unai Emery's been appointed but I don't think Emery was in charge in this game uh, Newcastle won 4-0 hmm. Um, meanwhile, Everton and Fulham was goalless, and Brentford and Wolves drew as well. 
Um, I suppose the only other story this week is well, the story that I'm interested sorry, <laughs> as well is in F1 where we spoke a lot about Max Verstappen yeah. won the drivers championship with ease a few weeks ago um, he won it with four races left mm. we've now got two races left um, but he is he's won 14 races this season out of 20 so far which makes him the most dominant driver ever in terms of a single season. Wow. Um and there's still two two races left to go so he could he could it's likely that he'll get 16 wins out of 22. Mm. Um so last year we've gone from the most exciting season all sorts of controversy where it went down to the final lap of the final race where Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen were battling it out. So we've gone from the most exciting and the closest season ever to probably the most one-sided dominated mm uneventful season um, so I think that pretty much wraps up our sport there's not nothing too much going on um, and I don't want to talk about Liverpool any longer <laughs> yeah, we won't, we won't labour on that yeah. the sore spot right shall we move on to books of the week yeah, what we've been reading um, so this book which I finished last week so this is this is part of a book club pick um was the stranded by kate sawyer um so the story it's a dystopian sort of climate activism sort of book um and it's quite an abstract one as well so the protagonist ruth um lives in england uh she's just got into a new relationship she's got a nice job nice family Her, her life is very comfortable um she doesn't really watch the news she's sort of a head in the sand kind of person so when bad things start happening she isn't really aware of them uh, and she decides when her new romance sort of breaks down, they break up, everything goes quite bad. Uh, she's going to go travelling and she she goes travelling to New Zealand. So she heads out there on a plane. By the time she arrives in New Zealand, the world is sort of falling apart, really. Um, and we don't really know what happens. We know some colossal global event happens we never really find out exactly what that is um but the the book sort of alternates between past and present so the past is uh Ruth's normal life how her romance happens how her job goes what her life was like before and they refer to it as the before during the book and then the present which is in this dystopian post-apocalyptic world where she's basically trying to build a life from absolutely nothing uh, so it flips b- between the two, and at first it was a bit of a slow book. I'm not gonna lie; it, it's not my favourite, but I just thought it was a really interesting book. Um, and what I've written is that I felt quite distant from the story whilst reading the book because, again, you don't exactly know what's happening at any time. Even though you know this big event happens, you you don't know what it is. You don't know if it's like a, a nuclear explosion or a, a big sort of um you know environmental disaster things like you don't really know what it is you just know something happens um so it's interesting in that sense and again with sort of my book club we had this discussion um and we realized that it was written during the pandemic and a lot of the book focuses on Ruth being alone and having to rebuild her I mean she's alone even before this big event happens in her life she's she's quite lonely but then obviously she's alone after this happens and having to build a life on her own again um, so yeah, the, the theme of isolation is a is a big one during the book as well, and obviously, being written in the pandemic, you can see how that sort of tracks. Um, but it it was just very interesting, and again, we sort of, I think, climate 
um, related fiction is sort of growing in popularity at the moment. So it was it was it's something I wouldn't have picked myself to read. So it was quite interesting having that. Um, and again, looking at the climate aspect of it, you could see it maybe as a bit of a cautionary tale um, for us and what might happen uh, if we don't get our act together. So it was an interesting read. I'll give it that. Um, I think it's interesting that they, is it Kate Sawyer, left mm. out the whatever this key event that changed the world yeah. is because that is kind of a fill in the blanks for the future in a way, isn't it? Mm. So that this book can be read. You could read that obviously with something like COVID or yeah, exactly. whatever event which will inevitably happen at yeah. some point. Hopefully not in our lifetime. Hopefully not. Um, that's that's quite interesting. So I, I'd hope that this book kind of stands the test of time and mm. sort of might be read sort of looking back on time. So that I like the sound of it. I might give this a read. I think you quite like it, yeah. And I think you're right. I hadn't thought of that, that the point of it being quite vague is yeah, you could read it this year you could read it 10 years from now and there yeah. might be another event it relates to but yeah you never you never find out which you're going I thought it was quite interesting like she gets on a plane when she leaves England things aren't normal but things are fine yeah. by the time she gets to the other side of the world everything's gone to chaos so yeah like you say it, hopefully it will stand the test of time and um, yeah be relevant when if other things happen but yeah. it, it was an interesting read yeah I think you'd quite like it and should we move on to... Yeah, do you book? want to tell us about your book? My book is my favourite book of all time. Mm. I don't know whether you've read it. I, hope I haven't, have. but I've read other books by him. Well, I'm going to say you need to read okay. it. Okay. <laughs> so it's The Kite Runner by Khaled Hosseini. Um, I, re- I read it in school for A-level and loved it. And then I chose to return to it for my dissertation last oh, year. Oh, nice. Um, so it's, it's sort of my go-to book. So I just love reading it, everything about it. Um, so the story, if you're not familiar, um, it's about two young boys, two best friends, Amir and Hassan, who grow up in Afghanistan. You see them growing up just before the Taliban take over, um, and then the book extends through sort of Taliban rule. But basically, Amir, the protagonist, the narrator, is a Pashtun boy from a wealthy family, whereas Hassan is a Hazara boy. Um, and as a mere servant, so that that Pashtun has, and Hazara is an ethnic difference in Afghanistan, and it's a real tension sort of in society. You see, Hassan and, and his father get bull, like bullied seriously, mm. and it, it's a tension also between Amir and Hassan as well, because um, they're obviously friends, but society saying they shouldn't be, mm. uh, <coughs> and so uh, another so just sort of expanding on the differences Pashtuns generally uh, serve as Sunni Muslims whereas Hazaras generally serve as Shia Muslims so that's got of a religious difference within right. within that um, but they're, they're best friends they enjoy running kites in Afghanistan so Amir would fly the kite and they try and cut opposition kites mm. uh, in the sky and then Hassan who is the kite runner um, runs and picks up the kite and brings it back and it's a huge celebration um, until one time, sort of the crux of the story is that Hassan is running this kite for Amir <clears throat> and these older boys come to him and say get, sort of give me the kite, we want it um, and, and these are Pashtun boys they're bullying him for his mm. ethnicity and Hassan out of loyalty for Amir refuses 
to give up give up this kite and as a result he actually gets raped by these boys. Oh my god. Um all that all the while Amir was watching this happen. He can oh see it in the distance god. and he chooses not to intervene because he you know, he says himself he's a coward and he is ashamed of his friendship with Amir, um, just because of how their ethnic difference looks in society. So after this terrible event their relationship completely breaks down. Mm. Amir can't bear to see Hassan because it reminds him of Amir's own guilt and then Hassan at a time when he needs his best friend can't have him because Amir is pushing him away so they end up there's a story and then Hassan has to leave, Hassan and his father have to leave um, and then just after they've left the Taliban take control so Amir and his father who are wealthy can flee from Afghanistan and yeah. they end up after a, a grueling refugee journey they end up in America, settling in California. Um, and then the book kind of speeds up and Amir grows up in America, living with his guilt, never really confronting it, until one day someone from Afghanistan, I think his father's friend, tells him that Hassan's been killed by the Taliban unjustly. And Hassan actually has a son, Sorab, who is left orphaned in Afghanistan and basically needs help. He yeah. needs to get out. And then also at that point, Amir learns that Hassan wasn't just his friend, but actually his half-brother. Um, and it's a secret that his father kept from him oh because God. of obviously how it would look in, in society. So there's a, a story there between Amir and his father. Amir really looks up to his, yeah. his dad and can't, never gets the gratification from his dad. Um, and all the while, it's because his dad can't bear to look at his own son because it reminds him of wow. Hassan. So... Amir goes back to Afghanistan, so quite literally confronting his past, mm. saves Sorab, brings him back to America, and they fly kites in sort of this cyclical story that ends how it started. Yeah. So it's a redemption story. Um, there's just great imagery of Afghanistan and mm. then contrasting it with America. Um, so it's just my favourite book of all time, and it's actually a film as well. So if you yeah. want to watch a film, it's really good. It's it's a book that I've been told to read so many times, yeah. um, and I've read A Thousand Splendid Sons by yeah, Carl Tassini, yeah. and I loved that book. Um, but I didn't know all this happened in the kite run. I thought it was just about sort of the Taliban and these two boys. But it, it sounds much deeper than that. It sounds fantastic. You really yeah. sold it. I think the the only criticism of it is how it makes America kind of look like the savior. Oh right. Um, which is that's the only criticism of the book because mm. Khaled Hosseini it actually moved to America himself. Yeah. So that's that's the only criticism of the book. But I, it's honestly my favorite book of all time. I can see why. Yeah. Film of the week. Just moving on was Spotlight, which is a story about journalists working in Boston. Yeah, the, the Boston, Boston Globe. Globe. Um, and it's basically, in short, it's a story of them uncovering this scandal within the Catholic Church of priests um, you know, sexually abusing children in their church, isn't it? And it's not just one or two priests. It is, I think it was up to 80 priests yeah. in Boston alone, something just like that. Just in Boston, yeah. Yeah, so it's a true story mm. of how it happened. Um, and it was, the thing I took from it was it was the importance of journalism in society of course we would say we that, would say that yeah. <laughs> but it's the importance of them to uncover this story that was 
just being brushed under the carpet, really. Mm. But then on the other side of it, it comes out that they actually had all the details of the story yeah. 20 years before they reported it here mm. in this film. So it's it's the importance of, I put journalism within journalism, mm. that it, you know, it's the role of the journalist needs to be a watchdog for society. And given these facts, they should have acted on that earlier, shouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. What this film made me think of um, is a comment that Kevin, one of our tutors, always says, which is that journalism is the practice of holding a mirror up to society. That's what I th- I constantly thought watching this film. And this was a this was a, I, I loved this film. I thought it was a fantastic pick, and it was one of those as well that I knew was going to be heavy. So usually when I watch heavy films, I have like a palate cleanser after, so I watch yeah. something nice. Um, I was going to watch Gavin and Stacey after I finished this. There's like a nice palate cleanser. But I got to the end and I just had to sit with it for like a good half hour. I couldn't watch, read, listen to anything else. I just sort of had to let it wash over me because it was such a powerful film. And I just say, you know, it was great seeing that journalism in practice. And obviously we, we, we would say that is really yeah. important. Um, but yeah, obviously you just see the power of what, journalism can do and the good it can do you know yes they had all that information yeah, years I suppose before it, it shows the, the bad it can do as well because they yeah it's the power of the media so they put this story sort of in a small column in the paper 20 mm. years ago um instead of obviously making it a huge deal yeah. of what it needed to be so it's the power of the media in terms of what impact they have on stories that they run as well mm. so where do they put them how much um, you know, time do they give it? How many pages do they get in the paper? How many articles go online? Is it talked about on news platforms and all sort of things? So it's the power of journalism for good, but also there was just a little reminder that the media also just kind of need to be held to account that mm. they have a power themselves to choose how stories are interpreted. interpreted yeah, in and I think that comes up in the film as well. I think the really good bit is, so during the course of the film, obviously the 9-11 attacks happen, yeah. um, and they're still working on this story. Obviously they have to pause it and focus on that. But when the journalists who are working on this want to return to the story, people are sort of, they don't want bad news on bad news on bad yeah. news, I think, and they want, they want a palate cleanser. But obviously because this story is so important, it's not the kind you can just sort of, ignore and push to the side because something bad has happened. Obviously, you know, people needed that time to process. They needed to come to terms with 9-11, but this was, you know, something else that needed to be known, again, on a much bigger scale. And just lastly, I thought it was the importance of the angle of a story. So what Mm. kind of, what headline would they go with? Because all the way through, they have this new editor that comes in who is kind of the motivation behind the story. And all the way through, he's saying, like, what you've collected isn't enough. You need need to prove it is the entire system of the church. Um, So that was, I thought, really good to watch because you'd be tempted when you've got this huge story just to publish it straight away. You know, priest in church, sexually abusers, Mm. five five children or whatever, when actually the story, because they sat on it for such a long time and... You know, really investigated everything about the story. They uncovered that it was really from the top to the bottom of of the church yeah. in Boston, at least. Um, but they showed at the end that it was all these it places in the world. Wide. Yeah, it was all over the world. Yeah. So I thought it was a really good film, mm. a, a serious film, but a really good film. It was, yeah, it was fantastic. I, I it was a really good pick.
Right. I think that wraps us up for the week. Um, yeah, thank you for listening yeah, and we'll, we'll see, see you next, next week. week.